All right, well, the title of tonight's message is You Are My Everything. You Are My Everything. As I was thinking about this title, that's sort of the takeaway that I had from Psalm 31 here, which will be our psalm that we're going to look at in our series Insights from Psalms here this evening. And as I considered that title that I thought somewhat summarized the the main gist of this psalm, I was reminded that this is the title, You Are My Everything. This is the title of numerous secular songs. There's quite a quite a grouping of them, actually, that have this title, You Are My Everything. Naturally, they're not talking about the Lord. They're talking about another person, usually in relation to some, some love interest or attraction of some kind, and saying to that person, You Are My Everything, and I want to write this love song for you to just tell you how important you are. The song's a song that has that title. It's intended to communicate this complete dependence or fixation that you would have on somebody else. You're my everything, meaning, in a sense, the underlying idea or the takeaway of a title like that, you are my everything, would be my happiness depends on you. Or I can't function without you. I mean, if you're my everything, if you're the very air that I breathe, even some of those songs have lyrics like that. This idea of total dependence, I can't even operate or thrive or function apart from you in my life. Now, that's a nice sentiment to have, I would, I would say, in terms of if somebody were to write that about you and, that, and to indicate that you were that important to them in, in, in their life, you might feel special and might have the intended outcome. But from a faith perspective, that's not the perspective of a believer that we should be looking at other people uh, to provide that source of everything that is necessary for life. And it's not to say that God doesn't want us to have close human relationships or even that he doesn't want us to depend on other people, but not to depend on them first and foremost, to depend on him first and foremost and see that those people that are contributing to our well-being or the happiness in our life, they're ultimately gifts from him. They're provisions from him. They're a part of even his design for people to not be alone, to have a reflection of him in each person so that we have the opportunity to live life with other people, but all under the umbrella of a relationship with Him, all under the umbrella of people who are experiencing the fullness of that relationship because they're experiencing the fullness of their relationship with Him first, and then on a human level, those relationships can thrive the way God intended. Well, as you think about how interesting it is that there are numerous songs with that title, You Are My Everything, interestingly enough, there's also a title of at least one Christian song, at least one contemporary Christian song that has the same title, You Are My Everything. Now, in that song, obviously the focus is on the right idea, that God is my everything. And it's a way to talk about just a sense that my dependence or my ability to function or thrive, my happiness, my peace, my purpose, my direction, my contentment, all the things that I need are directly tied to the provision of God in my life. And you see, what a great song that would be to say, you are my everything, and to be sincere when we're saying that, to not be self-deceived when we're saying that. Because sometimes we actually believe that that's true, but in fact, The evidence would show otherwise if we were to actually look at our decision-making, look at the actions that we're taking and the words that we're speaking. Clearly, that isn't the case, but sometimes because we have this aspirational desire anyway that that would be the case, we think that that's true, 
Now, having a desire or an aspiration that God would be our everything, that's where it starts. There's nothing to feel bad about with that, but also being cognizant or aware of the idea that just because I want that to be true doesn't automatically mean that it will be true. But you think about God's will for our lives. God wants his children to prioritize and depend on him completely. God wants believers to realize that their happiness, purpose, and joy is tied to Him and this intimate personal relationship with Him. And so as we think about this title, very appropriate in the sense of God's will or His perspective about how we should be looking at Him, how, should we, how we should view Him, you are my everything. And so in Psalm 31, we see this from David as he poetically describes different ways that he views God. But if you take all of those different ways that he views God and you look at them together, they portray this idea that God is his everything, that he's looking to God with this perspective of complete dependence, that he's trusting God in all of it, not just some of his life, but in all of his life and in all of the troubles and difficulties that he's facing. So if you haven't turned there already, let's turn to Psalm 31, and we'll get going with this psalm. It's a fairly long psalm for the pace that I'm able to go. So we're going to keep, try to keep moving. We're not going to read it all at once just because it's 24 verses long, about twice as much as we got through, exactly twice as much as we got through last Wednesday. So we're going to just dive right in and hopefully the context won't get lost as we go through it. You'll see how each one of these sections ties together with the one before it. Now the first section I have here, or the, the way I would title it or label it is, I put my trust in you. And we're looking at all of these all of these different sections, I have them labeled sort of from David's perspective. So from David's perspective, he wants to start out with sort of the summary statement. I put my trust in you. So in verse 1 and 2, let's read them together. It says, in you, O Lord, I put, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. So, though I had a page turn there, there's a bunch there, but the, the essence of it is, in you, O Lord, I put my trust. I put my trust in you. And it serves as this, again, summary or primary statement of the idea of the whole psalm. Now, when you think about this word trust, it generally refers to Finding a, somebody as a source of confidence or dependence. I put my confidence or dependence in you and, and the Lord is the one who's identified as the source of that. So it's presented in a conclusory kind of a way in terms of a conclusion that David has already reached in his life that in you, O oh Lord, I'm going to put my trust. Now what's sort of written in there or you have to see behind the text there is if I'm going to find my trust in the Lord, if I'm going to find my confidence my sense of stability, if I'm going to find that in the Lord, that I'm not looking for it elsewhere. That's a critical point. It's not just that David comes to the conclusion or realization, again, through getting it right sometimes and getting it wrong sometimes, but through trial and error or the course of his life leading up to him penning these words, he's saying, I've learned this. I've, I've learned to not put my confidence in these other things. Now, remember we had just looked at David talking about how he had in the past 
started to find confidence in himself as he would see things going right in his life. Look back to Psalm chapter 30, not 30, but Psalm 30. And you see that in verse 6, we touched on this last Wednesday, but he says this, he had some sense of prosperity. So he said, now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Now remember, as we looked at that, what he had forgotten was that it was God who had provided for him. It was God who had undertaken. It was God who had made his mountain stand strong. But he's saying, and it's not, again, all as, as clear as it could have been, as you see in some, a couple of the translations do have it much clearer than this, but the idea was, I started to think that this was my own doing, that my success was my own doing. And so I started to look at that prosperity and get arrogant, have, have pride get in the way and start to say, well, I'm never going to be moved now. Look at how well I'm doing. Look at how wonderful I am. Look at how, look at how great things or what great things that I've done in my life instead of giving God the glory. So come back to our next psalm here in 31, and he's saying, I'm going to put my trust in the Lord. I had to learn that because I was tempted at times to put my trust in people, to put my trust in armies, to put my trust in wealth, to put my trust in human prosperity, to put my trust in other people and generals and friends and people of influence, to put my trust in other nations even, but not to put my trust and keep my trust and my confidence in the one place that it ought to be all of the time without any wavering, and that's the Lord, the one who is worthy of our faith, worthy of our trust. So he reaches this conclusion. Now, you think about your own life. If this is sort of, I have learned to put my trust in you or you are my everything, we have that summary statement right here. And so then the question is, have you come to this conclusion? Because it's being stated as a conclusion. This is reality of my thinking is, I, in you, O Lord, I put my trust, not I need to learn to do this. I'm doing this right now presently because I've learned this in the past. Now, have you? Have you got to a place where you've reached the conclusion that all these other things that I've been trusting in, all of these other things that I had been finding confidence in, they're not worthy of my confidence. I need to find my primary source of confidence in the Lord. Now, again, does that mean that you can never have confidence on a human level in other things? No, that's fine. But have it in perspective, realize that that comfort, confidence may be misplaced even on a human level, not even not on an eternal level, not a spiritual letter, level. But are there times when you can feel some sense of assurance from different people in your life or even you, know, you have some confidence? Here, just an example. Like confidence in general, so long as it doesn't become prideful, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You, you build a deck very well. You reinforce it with strong lumber and strong, a lot of bolts, and you really over-engineer it. Now, can you have some level of confidence then that the deck's going to hold you up? The answer is, yeah. But we're talking about confidence in terms of where I'm going to find my stability in life, where I'm going to find my purpose and my power and my strength and my direction. Where am I going to find my contentment? And to, to have a confidence and have a focus in those, those areas of our spiritual well-being, where is our, our primary gaze directed? And is it directed primarily at all of these other things, all these other people, or is it focused first and foremost on the Lord? And that's the idea. Now, you want to see some specifics to this. David, he then effectively speaks to some of what it means to have my confidences in you. 
So he really effectively is going to say in verse 2, my confidence is in you, so please save me. Since my confidence is in you, now I'm going to look to you for salvation. I'm going to look to you for deliverance. I'm going to look to you for rescue. So he says what? He says in the back half of verse 1, deliver me in your righteousness. Then he says, hear me. See, when he says bow down your ear to me, all that means is hear me. Listen, listen to me. Be aware of or, or take, take an interest in what I have to say to you. Then he says, deliver me speedily. Then he goes on to say, be my rock of refuge and be my fortress of defense. So he says, I am trusting in you. And since I'm trusting in you, Lord, then save me, help me, be, be that thing that I'm depending on you to be. And it's interesting prayer, really. Because he had to, in order to trust God to be those things, he had to have a confidence in God at the same time. It clearly wasn't wrong for him to have a perspective that says, God, I need all of these things and I'm trusting you to be all of these things that I need. I'm not, I'm not going to look for them elsewhere. I'm going to trust you to be my deliverance. I'm going to trust you to be the one who's listening. I'm going to trust you to be my rock of refuge. I'm going to trust you and put my confidence in you to be my fortress of defense. Now, are those things needed in life? Yeah. There's trials in life. There's hard things in life. There's complications in life. There are really challenging and difficult trials that we face in life. There's really hard things in life. And there are things that are overwhelming. So the question isn't, are you going to face those things? You are going to face them. The question is, while you face them, where are you going to find your confidence to endure those things or to have victory over those things? And David's saying, I'm going to find my confidence in you, Lord, but I still need you to be my source of rescue, salvation, deliverance, and so on and so forth. So on and so forth. So we keep going then in our psalm here, and we see that the next section says, if I'm putting my trust in you, just like we talked about. Now I'm going to put my confidence in you. So I, have, I depend on you for everything. So I put my trust in you, and now I depend on you for everything. Coming back to even our title, you are my everything. Now let's read verses 3 through 5, because that's what makes up this section. It says, for you are. Now he's saying, I want you to be these things in verse one, 1b through the rest of verse 2. But now he's saying, I needed you to be those things, but I know you are those things. For you are my rock and my fortress. He's asking him to be that, be my rock of refuge at the end of verse 2, but he says, you are that. I need you to be what I already know you to be, because I'm needing that in this moment right now. Then he says, therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me, pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. Now catch the confidence in this statement, for you are my strength. Now he just got done saying, I need your strength, I need your help, I need your rescue, I need you to be what I know you to be. It's just an interesting way of saying that. Uh, it's an interesting way of talking to God, but it's very beautiful the way that David even puts this to pen to paper here in, in, in writing this psalm. Again, as inspired by the Spirit of God as all Scripture is given by God, as God breathed. Then he goes on to say, into your hand I commit my spirit. So if you are my strength and if you are my rock and my fortress, then into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. 
You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. So I depend on you for everything. So here we see four of the ways that David describes what God is to him. Remember, the takeaway here is, I put my trust in you, God, because you are my everything. I trust you with every facet of my life. Now, here's at least four of the ways that he views or sees or describes God. Now, two of them are very clear and two of them are implied from the text. You have to pull it out of the text. But the first two that are clear are, you are my rock and my fortress. You are my strength. So my rock and my fortress, a place of safety, a place of stability, a place of protection. Then you think about you are my strength. That's where my power comes from. I know that it doesn't come from myself. It has to come from you, Lord. Now the two that are implied that you have to pull out of the text are you are my redeemer. You see how it says, he talks about the concept that you have redeemed me. Well, to have redeemed me means that God is my redeemer. Just like where it says, you are a God of truth. You are a God of truth. That means you are my source of truth. It's one thing to say, you are a God of truth. You've redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. You, that's who you are. You are a God of truth. But this is a personal psalm where David is talking to God about the things that he's depending on God for. He's not just depending on God to be his rock and fortress and strength. He's saying, I'm, I've been depending on you as my redeemer and also my source of truth. Now, if you come back to the redeemer part of it, that word in Hebrew refers to one who delivers from harm or evil. Another definition of the word is the one who ransoms, liberates, or buys something or someone back. So you think of even the story of Ruth and the idea of a kinsman redeemer, this idea of purchasing back or buying, buying out of bondage, buying out of debt. This idea of deliverance, though, the one who delivers, ransoms, liberates, David is saying here, you are that to me, God. You're the one who I am trusting and finding my confidence in to be that deliverance, that source of deliverance, that source of liberation in my life. Now, is David only talking about the physical realm here? And the answer is probably not. David is talking about both the deliverance that God has given him from the bondage he was in to having no solution to his own sinfulness, realizing that God was going to have to provide a way to deal with the fact that his sin had estranged him from a holy and righteous God. Now, is that something that he clearly says right here? No, but we know that David is a man of faith. We know that the only way to have faith is to depend on God's provision to deal first and foremost with our sinfulness. That God would have to make a way where there was no way. That God would have to undertake to provide for the separation that had been caused between us and God as a result of our association with sin, recognizing that we were helpless and hopeless and ultimately hellbound unless God would do something to pay the debt that we owed, which was to forever remain separated from Him as a result of being identified with the things that were in opposition to God. And God being holy and righteous and just, He couldn't just overlook Sin. So every man of faith was justified before God as a result of his faith in God to deal with the ramifications or the consequences of his identification with sinfulness. And so as you think about David, David recognized that what was the reason or the purpose behind all of the symbolism that's relative to innocent lambs dying Blood being shed in the place of the guilty to have a temporary covering for sin. 
Well, he was recognizing, as the men of faith in the Old Testament recognized, that something had to be done about sin, and it was going to involve the substitutionary death of an innocent in the place of the guilty, even though they didn't have the full revelation about who that final lamb would be, that it would be the sinless, perfect, spotless lamb of God who would one day come to take away the sin of the world as through the shedding of blood there would be then remission permanently of sin, not just the temporal covering, looking forward to the coming Messiah or the permanent solution that God would have for man's sinfulness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But David had to understand that, that the one who can free me from that, the one who could liberate me from the debt of my sin is ultimately God and his provision to meet my need. Now that's on the spiritual realm, but did David also have to understand that the one who could liberate him from himself The one that could give him victory over even the flesh and the sin nature ultimately would have to be God who would undertake to allow him to have a right relationship with God. Allow him to be regenerated so that he would be capable of interacting in a way with God that would please God in time. Apart from God's provision for that, there'd be no right relationship with God in time either. See, David had to understand that point in time Uh, idea, the idea of a permanent substitute to deal with his sinfulness apart from works, apart from himself, all because of God's love and grace. But he also had to understand that it was God's love and grace that would make it possible for him to rightly relate to God in time too, and that the only way to access that would be by faith, that you would live a life, a walk as a believer, you would live that life the same way that you got regenerated into that life to begin with through faith in God's provision to deal with man's need. See, David had to understand that. Sometimes people tell me, well, the pages of Scripture don't make that real clear as to what the Old Testament saint may be understood about those things. True. That that is true, that there there isn't the same clarity about what the Old Testament saint understood or believed that you might find in the New Testament. But that doesn't mean that the Old Testament saint didn't understand these things. It means that God's focus in the story that he was telling about this progression that would lead up to a culmination, a punchline, if you will. There's all of this movement in the story to go from man has a problem to God has a solution for the problem. God chose to tell that as a story that would span having a start and a middle and a climax. Every story has a climax, and the climax of the Bible is the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the focus was on the Redeemer, How would we get a Redeemer? What people would it come from? How would that all progress over time in all this foreshadowing that would show us that man has a problem he can't solve on his own. God is going to have to solve this problem. It's going to involve the shedding of blood. It's going to involve an innocent dying in the place of the guilty. And here's all of these different examples as the story progresses. And I I use even the nation of of Israel as a vehicle to tell the story about the coming Savior who would come through this line due to my promises to one man, Abraham, and how I would be working through and building toward this climax. And along the way, I'd be showing man over and over again so that I could show you looking back at these stories. I could show you that if you're operating independently from for me, you will not be successful. It doesn't matter which time in this story we would pick or which person we would pick. They would either learn to depend on God to provide for the things they could not provide on their own, which was their own spiritual well-being, to deal with the problem of their sinfulness, to deal with the issues of living a life that could please God. They would see that I must trust God and depend on God fully in everything. For every aspect of this, if I'm going to thrive, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Noah 
or you're talking about Abraham, or you're talking about Joseph, or you're talking about David, the same lesson is being taught over and over again. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You need me to undertake in your life as you respond by faith so that I could make my way of living possible in you. And you think about that. Every page that you would turn to is effectively another variation trying to teach us that same thing, that man has a need, that man cannot solve that need on his own, that God is going to have to undertake to provide everything that man needs. And when man can learn to trust God, depend on God, put his faith in God, then man can thrive. Then man can live life in a way that could please him because it's a life of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him because he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You have a part in this. God isn't forcing you to have a walk of faith. He's not forcing you to trust God with the trials and the troubles and the tribulations and the hard things that you're going through tonight. He's not forcing you to do that. But he's saying, will you? He's saying, you'll be blessed. You'll be, you'll be better off if you could let go of this, which you can't change anyway in most instances, you have no control over in most instances, if you can let go of whatever it is that you're going through tonight and you can trust me with this, you can collapse restfully into my arms knowing that I'm a good God, that I'm a powerful God, that I'm a capable God, that there's nothing that's too big for me, that I will undertake to use even this hard thing in your life for your good if you could just trust me. Will you trust me tonight? Will you trust me tomorrow? Will you trust me with these things in your life? And that's what David was confronted with throughout his life, just like you're confronted with these things throughout your life, just like I was confronted by these things today, just like I'll be confronted by these things tomorrow. We have these choices to make. And so often we want to make the Bible so big and so complicated. It's not that big and complicated when you really think about it. God has to undertake to make possible for you a way of living and a way of life that you were incapable of on your own and that only through trusting and depending Him could you ever experience or realize in a practical kind of a way in a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. That's it. And you have to choose. Do I want that? Will I let God produce that in my life? Will I trust Him enough to just give up of myself to let go and let God like we talked about a few weeks ago. Will I do that? Well, David is learning this. He's, he's learning this through trials. He's learning this through difficulties. He's learning all of these different ways that God is ultimately his everything. He's every part of what he is needing in life. And then that fourth thing was that you are my source of truth. What, when you talk about you are my everything, let's not, let's not just skim over that. Where you get your direction, the compass of your life, your, where your, your source is for truth. You, you can think of your source of truth as the thing that is directing your thinking, the thing that is convincing you about all kinds of various things in life. That has a profound effect on your well-being spiritually. It has a pro- profound effect on your well-being physically too. Trust me, when your buddy says, hey, why don't you try to jump your motorbike over that car? You can do it. I have confidence in you. If you're going to accept that as true, you're going to physically suffer for that. That's true in the physical realm too. But we're here tonight at a Bible church talking about the spiritual realm. And where are we going to get our truth? Where are we going to get our direction? It's no small matter that David is saying, I learned to see God as the God of truth the God of truth. What a way to think about him. 
And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You want truth, quit looking for it in all the wrong places. You want spiritual truth, quit trying to find it in everybody else. Try to find it in your God. Find it in His Word because He says my Word is true. He says I'll guide you with the Spirit of truth, which is the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Do you want to know God's truth? Do you want to be guided in truth? Is it possible for you to experience that? The answer is yes, depending on where your focus is, depending on where you're getting your guidelines and your direction for life for, from. Are you getting it from somebody other than God? Well, then it's going to lead you astray, and David saw that. Now, notice what David sees as the ramifications of depending on or seeing God like this. He says, lead me and guide me. Lead me and guide me. And you see that at the end of, at the end of verse 3. Because I see you as my rock of refuge, because I see you as my truth, because I see you as my fortress, because I see you as my redeemer, lead me and guide me. And as you're thinking about how he phrases that, Lead me and guide me is the first one. This is what flows from trusting God. If I'm trusting God, if I'm seeing that he's my everything, if I see that he's my source of direction, then I'm going to have that perspective. Then if you are that God, then lead me and guide me. Instead of leaning on my own understanding, instead of walking in my own wisdom, instead of taking my marching orders from the world, I'm going to get that directive or in that direction in my life from God himself. Now, consider this, both of those verbs, these, the Hebrew verbs for lead me and guide me, are also used in Psalm 23. Now, remember Psalm 23? He leads me beside the still waters. He leads me in the paths of righteousness or the paths that are right. That second verb is actually the verb for guide me. They just translate it with the same words, leads me and leads me in Psalm 23. But those are two different words, the same two words that we're looking at here. God leads me and guides me. Why? Because God is my shepherd. What does a sheep realize about the shepherd? He's my everything. The shepherd is my source of everything. How does the psalm again start? Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He is the, he is the source of all that we need. And David is just repeating this, however, you know, eight psalms later here in Psalm 31. Now, the second thing he says is, pull me out of the net. So here's a, re- here's a ramification that David perceives that comes with seeing God in this way or depending on God, that God is going to rescue him. Pull me out of the net. It highlights the believer's regular rescue and deliverance in life, meaning the source of that is God. And how often is that? All the time. Not every day. Sometimes it's deliverance from myself. Sometimes it's deliverance from the schemes of others. Sometimes it's deliverance from the attacks of the wily one, the wicked one, the Satan himself. Sometimes it's all three of those at the same time. But the reality is that we're constantly in need of deliverance and rescue from the net or the snares of life. Now, when you say rescue from what? Again, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The snares of the world, the flesh, and the devil. When you think of a net, it's the idea of capturing something. You know, when you finally get that fish in the net, with a few exceptions, but when it's finally in the net, now you can count that fish as caught, right? Now, some would say, no, the, the net has to get into the boat. Now it's in the boat, now it counts as being caught. But you know, if it's, if it's an adequately sized net, fish don't get out of those nets very easily. Every once in a blue moon, you'll hear of it. But for the most part, if the fish gets in the net, he's trapped. It's ensnarement that we're talking about that I'm trapped by 
these adversaries that I'm facing. And the adversaries, friends, are fierce. They're fierce. Uh, David seems to be primarily focused on human adversaries in this psalm. But the adversaries that we're facing day in and day out are the influence of the thinking and the mentality and the things of the world, the opposition and the attack of Satan, who is desperately interested in keeping people from seeing the light of the glorious gospel. We are a vehicle that God wants to shine the light of the gospel through into the dark spaces and places that are all around us. And Satan is desperately interested in shutting that down, blocking that light out. He doesn't want people to be saved. So the main way that he does that is to make you ineffective. So he attacks you. Because if he can dull your light, then he can dull the effectiveness of the message of the gospel. Now, if your light is already being dulled by your flesh, then he doesn't have to work too hard on you. He can move on to the next guy. But the fact of the matter is that the flesh can make us quite dull too. In the sense that there's not light emanating from us the way that God wants there to be because we're too focused on ourselves, We're too captivated by other things. We're too disinterested. We're so interested in other things that we're disinterested in the things that matter most. And God says that's the problem. So David's prayer here is, pull me out of the net. Then he says, into, into your hand I commit my spirit. Into your hand I commit my spirit in, your, my spirit in verse 5. Now it serves as kind of a natural conclusion of sorts. If God is the one who is my rock, who is my fortress, who is my strength, who is my redeemer, who is my source of truth, who is the one who's leading and guiding me, who is the one who's pulling me out of the net, then what other conclusion should there be than for you to say, into your hands, Lord, if you're all those things to me, if you're my everything, then into your hands I commit my spirit. That should be the takeaway if we're convinced of these other things. Why are we not committing ourselves in the sense of entrusting ourselves to the Lord? Why are we not collapsing restfully into His capable hands? And the answer is not complicated. It's because when the rubber meets the road, the truth is that in that moment, we are not relying on Him and depending on Him to be our everything. We are not trusting Him to be who He says He is. We don't have that confidence in Him that we need to have that would allow us to really let go. See, letting go is a lot harder than it sounds. It's simple in the sense that that's what we need to do, but to actually do it involves collapsing restfully into His capable arms. But we have to be convinced that He'll catch us, convinced that He's real, convinced that He's present, convinced that He's capable and able to do what He says He'll do. And we're not always convinced of those things, and you'll see that even David struggles with that at times. Now, the other natural thing I hope you notice when you hear these words into your hand, I commit my spirit, where else do we hear those words? We hear Jesus Christ crying those out on the cross, perhaps the last words that he says before he dies for sinners like you and I on Calvary. If you want to read about it, read about it in Luke 23, verse 6, uh, of the six or seven things that Jesus cries out on the cross, this is perhaps the last one. There's some dispute about which one is exactly the last one because some of them are recorded in conjunction with other ones. Which one was last? Does it really matter? But this is something that Jesus says as an expression of trust when he had completed his suffering. Now, when you see this word commit, what do we mean by this word commit? Into your hands I commit. It means to entrust. We're back to, I depend on you for everything. I put my trust in you. Into your hands I entrust, I commit my spirit. 
It's to put into the care or protection of somebody else. Now, my spirit here doesn't refer to it in the same way that it does when Jesus uses this phrase. It refers to myself, the totality of a person. I put the sum of who I am into your capable hands, God. And so even when you hear some people use the phrase, I commit my life to you, sometimes they think it's something they're doing to get saved and therefore it confuses the gospel. Other times they actually understand what it means and they think it means to entrust or depend completely on God to deal with the totality of my past, my present, and my future. I, I can't do it. It's almost, a, it's almost synonymous with this idea of I am going to have faith and dependence on your ability to do this for me because I can't do it for myself. I've run into people that actually have a pretty good understanding of the word commit or they're using it properly. And then I have other people who think that to commit your life to Christ means to change your life or to make sure your life looks a certain way or to give up on certain things in your life. And in fact, that's just adding works to the gospel of grace and that's a perversion of what the Bible says that the gospel is. It's a free gift that God offers that we can't work for, we can't earn, we can't merit. We can only accept it by faith in Christ's finished work on our behalf. Now we think about if God is all of these things, what other reasonable response is there? Into your hand I commit my spirit. Do you have that mentality? See, taken as a whole, these verses portray a heart of complete dependence on God. And does that represent your perspective in general? Do you have a complete dependence on God? Intellectually, are you convinced anyway that God is worth trusting? That He's capable, that He's able, that He's faithful, that He's, he's worthy of your faith and your confidence? Then if that's true, and oftentimes I think we have a general perspective that says, yeah, I am, I am convinced that like, you don't have to persuade me. I am convinced that that's true, at least in a cerebral type of a way. But then presently, how about right now? How about experientially? How about practically in this moment is that true? And too often we need to say, no, it's not. I need to be honest with myself. No, it's not. And then what does our prayer have to be? Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, make my faith stronger. Help me to see you more for who you are so that I can really let go of this and really give it to you. And I know I'm not going to do that until I'm convinced again or reminded again or persuaded further that you're worthy of entrusting this to You're worthy of me committing this and turning this over to you instead of trying to carry this myself because the the truth is I'm weary, I'm tired, I'm worn. If you're honest and you've been carrying around some weight for some period of time, whether it's days, weeks, years, if you've been carrying it around and you're honest, aren't you tired? Aren't Aren't you worn out? Isn't it exhausting to be carrying those things around? You know, one songwriter, a contemporary songwriter, he said, he had a song, he said, I'm tired. He said, I- I'm worn. My heart is heavy. He says, from the work it takes to keep on breathing. That's pretty somber, isn't it? Who's writing those words? A believer. Can a believer get to that point? The answer is, yeah. Life can knock you down. Life can break your heart. Life is really hard at times. So, is it a problem to have ever gotten to that place? Not necessarily. It usually maybe could have been avoided to get to that, get that far down that road. But recognizing you're there, focusing on how you got there isn't the issue. Focusing on the solution to that is the issue. 
Am I going to give that to the Lord? Am I going to pray that I could grow in my dependence and my ability to give it to Him and let Him carry that weight? He doesn't want me to carry these things. He says He'll carry them for me because He's my Father who's much stronger, more capable than I am. I have no strength apart from His working in and through me. And just like a dad who would see his son laboring under a heavy load, the dad would look at that and you've seen it many times, you've done it yourself probably, the dad would say what? Let me carry that. I got it. You just, walk, you just walk beside me. I'll carry the load. And that's what your heavenly father is wanting you to see, even in times of difficulty. Now, David moves on here. He says, not everyone trusts you, but I do. He says, not everyone trusts you, but I do. And then pick up in verse 6. I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. So not everyone trusts the Lord. He describes them as, I have hated those who regard useless idols useless idols. So those who regard useless idols, those are the people that David has an intense dislike or aversion towards. That's actually what the word means. It means to have an aversion toward people who are, instead of putting their trust in God, they're putting their regard in useless idols. Now, the interesting thing about this is that David was just as susceptible to the same thing as the people that he's saying, I have an aversion toward those people because I know it's not right. Does that mean he never prioritize something or made it to be an idol in his life above and beyond God? You don't have to know much about his life to know that that certainly was true. This isn't something that believers are incapable of, regarding useless idols instead of regarding the Lord. It also can describe one who's never known the Lord too, in the context that's probably who he's talking about here. They don't know the Lord. They're putting all of their confidence in useless idols. He's saying, this idol that has, is made with human hands, how could that do any of the thing that a person needs in their life? How could that lead me and guide me and pull me out of the net? How could that be my rock and my fortress, my strength, my redeemer, my source of truth, this handmade carving? How could that be possible? And the answer is it can't be. So he has a disdain or aversion towards those who are putting their trust in that. Now, there clearly are those in David's life that reject God, who they are. We don't know exactly in this, in this psalm, it doesn't say. But to place your confidence in anything else ultimately involves rejecting God. That's the problem with putting your trust in useless idols. It's not even that the idol itself has to in and of, in and of itself be something bad. We find all kinds of idols in our lives that are very good things, but that what makes them an idol is when we put them in a place of preeminence and in importance that is above and beyond God. And he says, that's not making that an idol because it's the thing that you're worshiping in place of me when I deserve to be number one. So David says, these alternative objects of one's confidence are useless. Putting your confidence in those things can't help you because they're limited, they're man-made, they're, they're temporal things. They're not eternal, all-powerful things like God is. So when you think about that word useless, the, the Hebrew word means worthless, without value, empty, or futile. So it's futile to put your trust in something that is an alternative to God himself when he's the only source that our confidence should be in. Now David contrasts this idolatrous mindset with his own present perspective. I say present perspective because that wasn't always his perspective. He says, I 
In contrast, I trust in the Lord. Now, what has God done to prove Himself trustworthy? Well, He is aware, present, and concerned about me and my problems. That's what David sees. God is aware, He's a present God, and He's concerned about me and my problems. How does He say it poetically? He says, you have considered my trouble. He says, you have known my soul in adversities. He's aware, God is present, God is concerned about me and my problems. Now say that to yourself tonight. He is aware, He is present, He is concerned about me and my problems. Now what else does David see in terms of how has God proven himself to be trustworthy if he says, and again as a statement, I trust in the Lord, our second time here tonight. In you, O Lord, I put my trust in verse 1. Now here we have him saying, I trust in the Lord in contrast to those who have this empty, worthless, futile, useless trust in something else beside God. Well then he says, you have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. What does he really mean here? God responds and undertakes to provide assistance in times of need. So God is concerned about me. He sees my problems. He's interested. He cares about me. And he provides assistance. You have not shut me up into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place, which just means a place of safety. Now what attitude should this produce in you? If God does all of those things, what attitude should you have? Well, David says it really well here. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy. Now, this word mercy is hesed. Unfailing, steadfast love is what it means. Unfailing and steadfast love. I will be glad and rejoice in your unfailing and steadfast love. God's love for his own is found throughout the pages of Scripture as a source of what can give us confidence in our God's concern and care for us can cause us to have faith or dependence or confidence or rely on God to undertake with our every need, to be our everything. And that's where it comes from is seeing that God does care and that he does love us with an unfailing, steadfast, promise-keeping, faithful kind of love. Now, is this your view of God? I'm rejoicing in your unfailing and steadfast love. Are you presently believing he will provide in whatever trials you are facing? Are you rejoicing in his care and compassion and concern for you? And sometimes it's not the case. Because sometimes you're like, I don't, I don't see him right now. I feel alone in this. But I want to challenge you tonight if that's how you're feeling. I can sympathize. I've been there. I can empathize. I've been there. But is God the problem? Is it that God's absent from this trial or that you won't involve him or include him in this trial? Is it that God's not available, that he's forgotten about you and that he's an absent and distant and far away God? Or is the issue that you won't lean on him, you won't collapse restfully into his arms and for whatever the reasons may be, right now, you're just actually finding some sort of purpose in carrying a load that he never asked you to carry. It's a masochistic kind of a thing that I actually feel bad in this suffering because I'm so sad I actually want to be sorrowful. I want to be sorrowful because I feel like that will help me to feel uh, in a way that is like what I'm thinking. So I can just kind of live in that space right now because that's how I'm feeling and I just can't get past it. So I'm going to stay right there. I'm going to set up my tent right there. But is that because God wants that to be the place that you're stuck or because you're choosing to be stuck there? And the answer is simple. It's you're choosing right now to be stuck there whether you know it or not. And God wants to move you past that. 
He wants to move you into the future that's bright. A future that's spent with Him is irresistible. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's filled with joy and peace, even knowing that those circumstances in and of themselves might still be there. But He's going to give you the grace that is necessary to still enjoy Him, still have a joy-filled life, still have a purpose-filled life, still have a bounce in your step in a sense, because you know that He's bigger than even that trial and that He's going to be able to faithfully undertake to use it for your good and His glory even though it's maybe not a great thing. Maybe it's, maybe it's not even a good thing. Maybe it wasn't even his will. But yet he's going to say, I'm going to carry you through this like a father has been carrying a son on his back because these weights are mine to carry, not yours to carry. So stop carrying them. Give them to me. So then David has this recognition, verses 9 through 13, I'm helpless without you. I'm helpless without you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I'm in trouble. My, eyes, my eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten like a dead man out of mind. Like a crazy person. I am like a broken vessel, for I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. Now question, does it mean that you're paranoid to think that people are against you? Not always. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they are, but God is always for you. And David sees I'm helpless without you. Now why is God's help and intervention needed? And the answer is because life is full of troubles. Listen to how David says this. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. He recognizes he has a need. Now, this shouldn't surprise you. Every aspect of life is tainted by sin in the fallen, broken world. Jesus in John sixteen thirty three said, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, though, he says, you will have tribulation or troubles, depending on the version. But be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. You are in me, I'm in you. There's victory in who you are in me. But he doesn't say that there's a trouble-free, worry-free, stress-free, difficulty-free life that I have planned for you. He said it's a life that's filled with troubles and trials and tribulations, all of which are intended to help you grow in your dependence on me, help you to learn to trust in me, help you to see how small you are but how big I am, how complete I am, how much I love you, how much I care for you, how much I've undertaken to give you a life that is, even in the face of all those things, a victorious life. Not victorious maybe from a human perspective, but victorious from a faith perspective, from a spiritual perspective. Now, David's various troubles are, dev- are described vividly and poetically. We just read them, but some of these are just, what a, what a vivid way to describe the troubles of life. My eyes, my eye wastes away with grief. My life is spent with grief. My life is spent with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. You notice that he does attribute his own decisions, his own lack of keeping his eyes and focus on Jesus Christ, not Jesus Christ, well, God in the context of the Old Testament here, as a source of what he's going through, some of what he's going through. But then think about, sometimes we, we worry so much about what other people think about us. Think about what David's facing here. He says, I'm the reproach among all my enemies and my neighbors. 
The people that have known me, the people that live near me, I'm a reproach to them. How about this? I am repulsive to my acquaintances. Ever felt that way? Those who see me outside, they flee from me. They run away from me. I am forgotten like a dead man who is out of mind, meaning out of their mind. I, I said, I thought of that as somebody that was out of their mind. I think it's probably out of, out of the mind of the people that are thinking of them now as a dead person. You don't, you don't think of that. I'm like a broken vessel. He, how many people are slandering him? Many. I hear the slander of many. How about this description? Fear is on every side. They take counsel against me and they scheme to take my life. Man, life's got some troubles, doesn't it? Life can be hard, huh? Is your life this bad? I hope not. Could you be facing all of these things, though? Yeah. Have you faced various aspects of this? Probably. I have. Does David say the solution is to focus on these things? No, it's to cry out to God for help. Have mercy, have your steadfast love on me, O Lord. Why? For I am in trouble. I don't focus on my trouble. I cry out to the one who can help. See, God needs you to see your helplessness apart from him. You're not going to come to the conclusion that he now does in verses 14 through 18. Remember, in a, in a song, often, oftentimes you start with the punchline, the conclusion, there, and, and come back to it. And David started off with, I've learned to trust you in everything. You are my everything. Well, he says it here now. You are my everything. You undertake for my every need. Let's read verses 14 through 18. So these are all happening, but then what does he say? Here we have it a third time. You think this is the theme of the psalm? You think this is is what you maybe need to learn or be reminded of? He says, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. Despite all these things that are going on, I trust in you, O Lord. He said that in verse 6. He said that in verse 1. Here he is saying it in verse 14. I trust in you, O Lord. I say, what? You are my God. My personal God can help me to overcome all of these things that are adversities and troubles and trials in my life. What does it say in verse 15? My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Man, there's a lot there. But as you look at it, you see, undertake for my every need. You are my everything. There's only two possibilities to seeing your helplessness. And David very vividly again described those troubles in life, the helplessness that he felt. But the only two options you have when you're faced with troubles is you either wallow in misery, you wallow in despair, you wallow in self-pity, or you trust the Lord's strength, provision, and love. And you say, well, it's easy for you to say, you don't know what I'm going through. And the truth is, I don't. And the truth is, it may be harder. It might may be the hardest thing you've ever done to let go of that and to trust the Lord's strength, provision, and love in the face of how sad you are, in the face of how difficult the thing is that you're facing, in the face of how disappointed you are, in the face of how even angry or bitter you are. Whatever it is that you're feeling, it may be very difficult to let go of that, to entrust God with that. I'm not saying it would be easy. I'm just saying God is faithful He's worthy. He wants to carry it. He's available. He's right there beside you. He doesn't want you to keep wallowing your way through life. 
He wants you to cast your cares upon Him because He cares so deeply for you. It's because He loves you so much that He wants you to do that. So now David has those two options. It sounds like he's been in places where he was choosing misery, despair, and self-pity, but now he's choosing to trust the Lord. So he says that, I trust in you, O Lord. My times are in your hands. Now this response begins with first seeing God in a very personal way. You see how he says, you are my God. He had to see that. Just like he had to see that God was his strength, that God was his fortress, that God was his redeemer, that God was his source of truth. He has to see that you are my personal, caring God who hears me, he sees me, he notices me, you have compassion for me. You love me desperately. I have to see that about you, God. And then faith involves confidently then asking God for help or assistance. If you're going through these things, are you going to help him? Are you going to ask him for help? Are you going to turn to him for help? Well, David does in verses 15b through 18, lots of different ways of saying it, but he says, deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. He says, make your face shine upon your servant which just means to look on on someone with favor, mercy, and kindness. He says, save me for your mercy's sake. See, David knows God's favor is ultimately undeserved. God's favor is a byproduct of his great love for us. That's why he says, save me not because I deserve it, but save me because of your steadfast love for me. See, the focus is always on God's faithfulness, not our own, and David gets that. He says, do not let me be ashamed. Instead, let the wicked be ashamed. He says, silence my lying and arrogant enemies, I'm paraphrasing now, who are slandering me. God's the only one who could deal with that, not you. Could you face that? Yeah. Does God need you to set them straight? No. God says, I'll deal with it. That's what David's prayer is. Silence my lying and arrogant enemies. They're prideful and they're slandering me. And in slandering me, in a sense, they're slandering you, God. Now we see David, as he wraps this up, he says, the goodness that you direct to your children, toward your children, is great. I see that, God. I see that your goodness that you're directing toward me as your child is great. In verse 19, it picks up where it says, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in your secret place of your presence. That's where rescue is found. That's where peace is found. That's where purpose is found. That is where we need to be in your presence from the plots of man, and you shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. In this case, people talking ill about you people slandering you. See, David expresses this confident faith in God's response toward his children. He learned and developed this through past experience. How great is your goodness? You shall hide them in a secret place. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion. He sees that God is exactly what he needs in these times of trouble. So then what does he say? That should bring about praise. He says, I praise you, Lord, even though my faith is small at times. He sees that his faith isn't always strong, but he says, I'm going to praise you anyway. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, meaning I thought this, I'm cut off from you before your eyes, but that wasn't true. That was just my perspective because my faith was small in that moment. All I could see was my trouble and my problems. All I could think in that time is God has forsaken me. But nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. See, he says, blessed be the Lord. Are you saying that in the face of the trials you're going through? You could be if you would give them to him. To bless the Lord means to praise him, exalt him, and worship him. Now why? Because he has shown me his marvelous kindness He's been keeping me safe. God is faithful 
even when you start doubting him. He said, I said in my haste, I'm cut off from before your eyes, but nevertheless, even though my faith was small and I was wavering in my faith, you heard the voice of my supplications. What a great God. David sees how great his God is. That's why he's saying, I will praise you. Blessed be the Lord means to exalt him, make him bigger, magnify him, worship him, lift him up, sing his praises. Then he says, as I have learned that, he says, you should trust the Lord too. He says, I trust the Lord. He is my everything. I've learned that. Then he says, you should too. Verse 23, oh, love the Lord, all you saints. See that exclamation point? Love the Lord, all, his, all you his saints. For the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the, pow- the proud person. Meaning God is able, God is capable, God is on, the, on our side. God is, God is the one who can fight those battles. You don't have to worry about what the prideful person is doing to slander you or what people are saying about you or how people despise you. God is the one who preserves you, not others. So he says, be of good courage. And he, God, shall strengthen your heart. Now who? All of you who hope in the Lord. He's not going to strengthen your heart if you're finding your confidence in something else. So seeing God's faithfulness should cause you to encourage others to trust him. So he's saying you should trust God too. Love the Lord, all you his saints. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. But that only applies to, that encouragement only applies to the one who is hoping or finding his confidence in the Lord. You're not going to have that takeaway, the benefit of trusting the Lord if you're not actually trusting Him. So David says, you are my everything. Now, he didn't say that directly, but he said, in you, O Lord, I put my trust. And he said it three or four times here in this Psalm 31 here tonight. What is he really saying, though? I can't function without you. I get that. You're the one who has to undertake and provide for my every need. And God wants all of his children to prioritize and depend completely on him. That's you tonight. That's me as I stand up here tonight. God wants believers to realize that their rest, their safety, their happiness, their joy, their purpose is found in him. But that's not going to be true if you're not finding your confidence and hope in him. So can you say tonight, you are my everything? God wants you to say that more than, in more than just an intellectual way. He wants you to be able to say that in a practical, experiential, present, a present way, right now. That's my perspective is, God, you are my everything. I don't need to lean on anything else or look to anything else. I'm going to keep my gaze firmly fixed on you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in Psalm 31. Thank you that it was so encouraging, reminded us that having our focus on our trials, our troubles, or ourselves, those aren't the kinds of things that are going to give us any peace. They're not going to give us any hope. They're not going to give us any confidence. But when we can get our gaze fixed on you and we can learn to trust you completely, to depend on you, to rest in you, to collapse in your arms, that we can experience life in a totally different way. Pray that we would see the value of that and that these wouldn't just be words that come in one ear and go out the other ear. Pray that we would see that this is the only way to really experience the abundant life that you had planned for us. Pray that you would help us with our unbelief, that you would help us to grow in our faith so that we would progressively over time learn to trust you more and more. With the hard things that we're facing and clinging to and having trouble letting go of, pray that you'd give us strength, give us wisdom, give us guidance, help us to let go of those things. Even though it's not always easy, help us with that because we all have those things that we're still struggling to just give over to you and let you carry like a father would carry on behalf of his child. Thank you again for this time.